want to remind you that um, as we are getting back in the swing of meeting uh, in person again, that we do have note sheets available for you at the back. Uh, so if you want to make use of those, you can, but you don't, you don't need to. They're not obligatory or anything. But if that would be a blessing to you, then we hope that you will uh, make full use of it. If you're watching online, we also pre- provide those resources for you as something that you could download in the, uh, the guide to worship. So make sure you check that out. Uh, click on the um, resources page or portion of our webpage, and you can not only watch the sermon and video, but you can download the note sheets as well. I know that uh, next weekend is the Super Bowl, so this is a little out of touch with the sports that are actually happening right now, but there was a day when the national pastime in America was the good old game of baseball. Uh, What's more American than going to the ballpark, eating some peanuts and a hot dog, watching a doubleheader under the late fall sun? It's a beautiful experience. I miss it. But with the way our culture has changed over the years, I think maybe baseball's losing its position as America's pastime. I think a case could be made now that the national pastime in the great United States of America is taking someone to court. Litigation. Few countries in the world can rival the sheer amount of time and resources that are spent in working through lawsuits of one kind or another. In the fiscal year of 2018 to 2019, California courts processed just short of six million court cases. Six million. California has a population of roughly 32 million, though my humble observation skills seem to indicate that number is dropping rapidly recently. But that means that every seventh person in California was involved in some kind of a lawsuit against somebody else. Lawyers must not be all that bad because Californians sure want to spend a lot of time with them. Now, we need to understand that litigation itself is not a bad thing. At its core is a respect for law and order and a commitment to expending the proper time and energy to make sure that the laws of the land are applied with consistency and equity. One of the ways we show respect for justice is by taking matters before wise counsel and getting assistance to determine who is liable and what kinds of consequences should be expected when someone breaks the law or offends their neighbor. You might remember, especially if you've been reading through the Bible four chapters a day, and you start at Genesis, I know a lot of people are doing that, uh, that when you read through Exodus in chapter 18, uh, Moses was trying to handle all of the complaints of the people. And his father-in-law Jethro realized what a toll it was taking on him, and he came to him, And he gave him some advice. He said, Moses, why don't you appoint some elders? Why don't you get some faithful men who are known in the community and respected, who love the law of God? Why don't you get them to see to some of the matters of the people? And we see in that passage that the people of God had problems with one another, didn't they? It wasn't wrong for them to seek objective third-party help to sort through those matters. But Paul in the early church are not living in the same time that Moses and Jethro were. Paul is not living under a theocracy. Israel, in the time of Moses, was what we call a theocratic nation. That means that God was literally the king of the nation. And he functioned in an active way among those people to whom he revealed himself. And that was not necessarily the case where Paul lived. Because Paul and the Corinthians, they lived under the rule of God, of course, But God was not working in the same ways that he worked through Israel, through Rome. 
The Corinthian courts were not filled with God-fearing men who would seek the wisdom of Scripture in judging matters of right and wrong. The same can be said for most of our courts today. They are primarily secular by nature and largely ignorant of God's law, though many of their founding principles were influenced by Scripture. Jesus wants to guide his people through their view of litigation and their understanding of how to interact as a community, as one body. And so here the Savior utilizes Paul the Apostle to deliver godly instruction on the matter, not just to the church in Corinth, but to our church and to the church throughout the world and through all time. Last week we noted a broadening application of Paul's introduction in chapter 5. We noted that chapter 5 started with a very specific situation in the church and then it almost immediately broadened out to talk about how that affects the whole body of Christ. And here in chapter 6, we're going to get something somewhat similar. Two people have a disagreement. One appears to believe he was defrauded by another. And so they bring, they're not able to resolve their own conflict themselves, and so they determine to bring that conflict and matter before the secular courts in Corinth, airing all of the church's dirty laundry, and subjecting themselves to a council that does not pay respect to the law of the true judge. Paul begins by showing his shock and expressing his displeasure at the two parties who are involved, but then he broadens his target and shows the church that their general eagerness to sue one another reveals a lack of holiness among them. And so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, friends. Uh, if you want to follow along as I read out loud, we're going to do the first eight verses of this chapter this morning. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are judged to angels? How much more then matters pertaining to life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let's take a moment and pray that God would guide us through the understanding of this passage. Lord, I want to preach this message expositionally, Lord. I want the Spirit to lead as I bring to you, the, to the people, the knowledge that you brought to me. And so I pray, Father God, that as we work through this together, that you would give us insight, that you would humble us. It is a mark against humanity that we so often approach our understanding of you, O oh God, as though we are the judge, as though we are the jury. And in our great knowledge and understanding, you are the one who is on trial. We will look at all the facts and we will decide for ourselves whether you are the one who is worthy of honor or not, as if we have the capacity to understand the depths of the universe and the greatness of the one who created all things. You, God, are the judge. There is no one beside you. And so I pray that you would humble our hearts today, Lord God, and get us off of our high horse. Help us to sit under the counsel of your good word. Let us humbly and gratefully and joyfully 
Allow this word to shape our view of the world around us and the way that we will interact with it. Thank you for being that one true judge. Please grace us with understanding this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. The passage begins like this. When one of you has a grievance against one another. Perhaps in our minds, based on what we've been meditating through on 1 Corinthians 5, when we hear the word grievance, we may immediately think church discipline, correcting sin among the brothers. That has been the main topic of discussion for us the last few weeks as we've worked through that chapter. But does sin ever give rise to legal action? Of course it does. As much as we would like to think of the church as a gathering of people who've been transformed by the work of Jesus Christ and who legitimately love one another, the church is still, we must confess, comprised of flawed human beings who are capable of sin. We offend one another. And sometimes those offenses need to be dealt with in an official way. So there are times when our sin causes strife that does not need to result in putting anyone out of the church but does call for some kind of corrective ruling or effort to restore justice or correct the brooch of trust that has happened between two believers. In those situations, is it ever okay to enter into litigation in the secular courts? According to Paul, it depends on which parties are involved. When it comes to two brothers or two sisters or a brother and sister who profess that their greatest judge is God himself, who have both willingly yielded their lives to the perfect word of God, there is a better authority to whom we can and must appeal. Note the tenor of Paul's response to their habit of suing one another in secular courts. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Does he dare is a way of expressing exasperation and surprise. In other words, how could you be so bold as to do such an unwise and selfish thing? The apostles making it as clear as possible that taking a brother or a sister in Christ to secular court isn't even something we should consider doing. Why? Because when it comes to judgment, we, God's people, the church of God, we judge those who are inside the church. Do you remember how we learned about that in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So when we trust in Jesus, the shape and the boundaries of every aspect of our lives, of who we are, those boundaries are impacted by that trust in Jesus, including our freedoms to pursue legal recourse against one another. In Christ, we can no longer be what we were before we found Christ. We can't continue with the same mindset. We can't look at the world in the same way. We have got to expect Jesus to change our minds. And that's a process that continues for the rest of our days, that God will continue to refine our thoughts and change our minds so that our lives and actions and even our attitudes and thoughts might glorify Him better. The grace of God proceeds to effectively shape who we now are. Now, this should extend to every aspect of who we are. It's not just about the spiritual part of you. It's not like you have compartments and you could say, well, God, you get the spiritual part of me. 
But the work part of me, the part that goes to my job on Monday through Friday, that's something I'm not going to really need help with. I'll deal with that just as long as you get my spiritual part in line. And you know what? My marriage, that's, that's on me, but God, please shape the spiritual part of me. We don't have compartments like that. If you give your life to Christ, you say, here is every bit of who I am. It is all broken and infected with sin. But the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, has the power to wash clean everything that is filthy about who I am and to make it new. I give you everything that I am because all of it needs fixing. Be my Lord. Be my King. Guide me. So as part of that reshaping that happens, God has decreed that believers have no right to let secular judges decide matters of brotherly love between believers. We don't have the right to do that. The secular courts, regardless of their intentions, are not righteous because they are judging based on man's law instead of God's law. Man's law cannot be righteous in a godly way. Now look again at verse 1. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now the Greek word for unrighteous here can literally be translated as unjust. That word just is important to the believer because we know that our standing in Christ only exists because God has made us just. He has justified us. So when he says the unrighteous here, he's saying literally the unjust. In other words, those who are not saved, those who have not been justified, they are spiritually dead. Some of the Corinthian justices might have been decent citizens of earth, but they were not yet citizens of heaven. And so the point is not that the judges are corrupt or that they are incompetent or, or they don't try to do their job the best they can. It's that they're simply lost. This should make us consider a very important question, friends. Listen to this and think about it. Is the law itself or the God who decreed the law greater? Which one is greater? Is it the law or is it the God that decreed the law? It is the God who decrees the law who is greater because the law proceeds from God. It came from Him. The law itself is not some entity or some idea or ideal or person that exists above God and keeps God in check. No, the law flows out of who God always has been and always will be. He himself is the epitome of nobility and goodness. So let me show you why that matters, church. A person can act according to the law while at the same time ignoring the God who decreed the law. Do you agree? Someone could do right things, but have no respect or love for the God that decreed those right things. If you have a good neighbor who never steals from you, who puts your garbage cans out in the morning when you forget so the garbage can won't get left for the week, he's willing to lend you some flour when you run out and you're trying to bake something, who shows a, a genuine interest in your family, remembers your kids' names, you have a neighbor like that, but that neighbor never has anything to do with God. Doesn't, doesn't consider himself a religious person at all, just wants to be a good guy, but has no respect or love for God, then that person may be experiencing the blessings of lawfulness. But without a faith in Jesus, their lawfulness is godless. It ignores the God who is greater than the law and will therefore not be pleasing to God. Does that make sense? 
Godless lawfulness is not pleasing to God. And that is why a godless righteousness cannot save us. Think about that, friends. We come here to glory in the fact that Christ has saved us by amazing grace, an undeserved gift that was given to filthy sinners who deserved condemnation and punishment, who deserve to be cast away from the presence of God forever. And yet we are new simply because God chose to love us. Not because we were smart enough to figure it out. Not because we did a whole bunch of penance and we've undone all the bad things that we have done. No, we are His because He said, I want you. Not because I need you, but because I am a God of love and I choose to love you though you are wretched and the object of wrath. I'm going to make you the object of my affection. If you don't have God waking you up and giving you a new spirit, all your attempts at righteousness are godless lawfulness. They are something that has the appearance of what is good, but disconnected from the source of what is good, they, value, they have no value whatsoever. They amount to nothing. Man's righteousness is based on pragmatism. Pragmatism is not a word maybe that you've used very much. Pragmatism means it, it all focuses on what works to accomplish the goals of the moment. In other words, righteousness is what is conveniently prudent for the moment to try to establish whatever goals the group that is forcing that righteousness on others might feel is good. The goals of man, however, are always changing. The question has got to be asked, what works best for who and when? Men's laws do not seek the greatest good. They seek the subjective good. They, wanna, they want laws that will help them right now. And if it doesn't help me tomorrow, I'm going to change the law. I'm going to adapt the law. I want it to help me whenever I want to accomplish a goal. I want the laws to affect me well. But that ignores the fact that there is something bigger than us that is greater than us. Depending on who's writing man's laws or making them up on the spot in some cases is our esteemed governor is so adept at doing, then you won't get the best good from the judgment seat occupied by a man. Because whatever he says is righteous and good might be different tomorrow. And it's probably different than it was 10 days ago. But God's righteousness, friends, we get to sing about that righteousness. We get to rejoice in that righteousness because it is based on his unchanging character. It is based on the immutability of God. It is a sure foundation. It is a strong and steadfast base upon which our lives can be built. Not what works for the moment, but what is right, what is good and holy and true and pure and noble and eternally will be so. If it is based on God's character, won't the law work out right eventually? Even though it might seem to not be prudent or pragmatically good for you right now, if you do what God declares and God declares what comes from his nature, don't you have an assurance in your heart of hearts that it will work out best for you eventually? God doesn't fail. Every law of man has failed, has cracks in it, falls short of perfection, but this God we worship today never fails. So the Corinthian church that by grace has come to know the living God is now experiencing friction within its own ranks. And though God has given them everything pertaining to life and godliness, He has provided for their needs. He is growing them up. 
Though God has sealed them with the Holy Spirit of promise, though God has set them free from the slave master of sin, they still feel compelled to go to unbelieving, unsanctified, uninspired secular courts and ask them to decide what is right. Do you see the deep and saddening irony to this practice? The secular world already condemned in its sin, just awaiting for its perfect and total destruction, is the place that the believers who've been redeemed for their sin are running to try to get counsel from. Do you see how backwards that is? It's like sitting your grade school children down at the kitchen table and laying out the books and asking them to set up the family's budget for you. Come on, guys. You've got to contribute to this family. Where should we spend our money? If Missy and I did that, do you know how much of my salary would be allocated to gummy bears? A very irresponsible portion of my salary, right? Because kids just want what is pragmatic. They want what is expedient. And if they see the money that's coming in, they're like, I know what I want to spend that on. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the experience to set up the finances for the house properly. So just as your sixth grader lacks the wisdom and insight and experience to contribute to good financial strategy, so too do the secular courts lack the wisdom, insight, and experience to properly apply God's law in matters of community and love among the brothers. At best, at best, the secular courts will give you a man's take on true justice rather than God's declaration of justice. So the secular courts lack the tools to judge the church's day-to-day affairs. In contrast to that, friends, this is where the sermon starts to pick up a little bit of, of a light air to it. Think about what God has given to you. The church has been given the resources it needs to deal with all these things. The church has been given the word. We have the word of God, and it's not some complex Rubik's Cube puzzle that doesn't mean anything to our minds. We've been given the word and eyes to see it and ears to hear it, practical, unbiased, unchanging, enduring, loving, able to equip the saints for every work of good, exemplified perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. We have been given the standard, friends. We don't have to wonder if this combination of policies is going to be what's best. This is what has been declared and will last forever. We've been given that word. Secondly, we've been gifted with servants. Now, I I preach this point humbly, right? God has gifted his church with leaders in which he has put the Holy Spirit. Men who have been shown their sin, who know the depths of their need to depend on God. The church has been given these elders, these leaders that you pray for regularly to shepherd you through these kind of things. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. For the building up the body of Christ. Don't you think that involves working through some of our mistakes and some of our offenses to one another? Don't you think that involves sitting down with two brothers who are at odds or two sisters who can't really stand each other and finding a way for them to love one another in the word of God and through Christ who connects them together? These leaders who can give you counsel and who can correct 
and who can point you to the word of God and give you the scriptures that you need to adjudicate every situation. They're not perfect, but they are redeemed. They are spiritually alive with eyes that are no longer blind. They have to wake up every day and trust the Lord or they fail miserably, often publicly. They are themselves forgiven, made aware of the depravity of man because they see it in themselves. And our need to heed the direction of the one great judge positions us to help you see how much you need him too. So we've been given the word and we've been given servants who are faithful to help the church and to lead the church. We've also been given the Holy Spirit, friends. The Holy Spirit, the priceless resource that dwells with believers, that guides their heart and their actions, that seals us forever with him, reminding them of their constant need to trust the Lord. That is what we've been given to guide us What secular counsel will pray over your needs after they render a verdict? What secular counsel will open up the mighty word of God intent not only to render a ruling that is just and fair, but also intent on helping you grow as a man or a woman in Christ through that struggle? What secular counsel is also your family and knows you well and has a better handle on whether the claims that each party in a, in a conflict makes are true or not. Is it not the church that you are a part of, that you are bound to, that you love and that you serve in? Without the engine of the Holy Spirit driving their being, the secular lawyers and judges are simply providing a pragmatic but limited service to the best of their ability. And believe me, friends, look at yourself. How, ability, how limited is man's ability to judge? Apart from God, we make mistakes in judgment all the time. And so to drive home the point, which Paul doesn't so much explain here in the text, but rather declares. He doesn't give you rational and logical arguments. He just simply declares, you can't do this. You you can't be like this. Because the answer should be so clear to the church and it should be clear to us as we read through this. In verse 2, it says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, we're not the judge of the world right now. But we look forward to the day when Christ returns. And what has he promised? He promised that we will sit in council with him, that he will delegate to us somehow some measure of the judgment that this world experiences because of the rebellion and rejection of Christ, which they hold on to. And if the world is to be judged by you, Paul says, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? If you will sit on a throne and along with Christ and in unison to him, declare a person's eternal fate, Don't you think you can help a brother and sister out who have some money issues they need to resolve or who have dealt with an issue of offense? Don't you think you can handle such a small thing? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, he doesn't go into great, doesn't go into great detail here. 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 speak about, very briefly, how fallen angels will be judged by the church. And that's a humble, interesting idea. I don't know if I feel up to judging angels. It must be the fallen angels, right? Because the non-fallen angels don't have anything to be judged, really. They are what they are, and they they live to the glory of God. But those fallen angels that were deceived by Satan and fell, they will in some way, shape, or form be judged by you. Think about the gravity of that responsibility, church. You're not just along for the ride. God is giving you wisdom. He's giving you responsibility. He's giving you a part to play in his kingdom. And if God will entrust those great responsibilities to the church, that means that you, 
Christian are equipped to judge the matters of the church today. To ask those who possess only human wisdom to render judgment over those who have been given heavenly wisdom of an infinitely greater value is a great concession to defeat church. How can good come from going into the secular world and saying, yeah, we're doing our best over here in the church, but we can't quite figure it out, so just lead us and guide us. What message does that send to the world? What message does it send to the world when we as brothers and sisters fight so hard against one another and ignore the counsel of our elders that we have to take the matter into a secular court and then show everybody how weak we are and and how we still struggle with sin? And you've got to guarantee the courts are not going to give you a chance to explain the, the theology behind the fallenness of even saved humans, that we still struggle. not going to give you a chance to do that. People are just going to see these two parties are from a church and they're fighting over stuff. Why are they fighting? I thought they were Christians. I thought they trusted in a God who was great and mighty. Do you see the defeat that comes when we come to the secular judges and say, please lead us and guide us? We have resources to govern ourselves and we should do a better job at that as the church of God. By subjecting themselves to the authority of the secular judges, the Corinthians are letting the cart lead the horse. That church should be guiding their community as a light that reveals truth and love to those around them that don't have Christ yet. Instead, they're looking at the other way around. They're trying to get the lost community to lead them to peace and reconciliation. By appealing to the wisdom of these secular judges, two Christians are essentially saying, we can't work this out with the tools that God gave to us, and it is wrong. There are some negative attitudes and errors that commonly accompany a lawsuit between two people. And you've got to understand, if you're going to take your brother or sister to court, you're likely going to feel rivalry with them. The factions that we're talking about in Corinth showed that they were capable of that. They were trying to defraud one another. That means that they were going beyond just, I want justice. They were trying to get what they could from one another. They were trying to make their enemy pay in court, even though that enemy was a brother or sister in Christ. When you get involved with litigations, there's, there's a very common threat that greed will begin to take over. And you'll start to make decisions based off of what you can get from your brother rather than how you can edify your brother or sister in Christ. And if your lawyer is a secular lawyer, a non-believer, they're going to drive home that point. You've got to get every dime that, that you deserve out of this. There's arrogance in secular litigation that won't let one party or the other admit their mistakes and their culpability. There's little care for the name of God when people go into a secular environment and try to battle each other out through the laws of the land. These are not characteristics of the community of Christ, friends. Why risk putting yourself in a situation where you'd be giving the wrong impression to the world around you about who the people of God really are? Now, in light of what we're learning this morning, some of you may be trying to reevaluate what you formerly or previously thought about litigation in these, in these verses. You might not have ever thought about the fact that if you took a fellow Christian to court, you'd be breaking the law of God. You might not have ever even meditated on that at all. And so if that is the case, this is a shift in paradigm for you this morning. And there might be some questions and some current concerns that are spinning through your head right now as this is so different than what you thought before. What if there's significant financial loss at stake here? 
Am I supposed to just let the church deal with my money? What about Christian corporations? Can two businesses that call themselves Christian corporations go to court against one another? Do these restrictions address civil or criminal court or both? These are some of the questions that we probably are thinking about this morning as we consider the ramifications of this change in thought. So I want to look at three important parameters to consider. Number one, God has delegated a degree of authority to the state, particularly in criminal matters, particularly in criminal matters. Romans 13, 1 through 4. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Let's pause there for a minute. What is that saying? That is saying that every government on earth, every institution of authority, whether it be kings or senates or a, a union board, any board that has authority, any structure of man has been allowed to be what it is because God is allowing it to be what it is. Not only does he allow it to happen, but he is using those secular means even to accomplish his goodwill in the world. Verse 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? So those whom God allows to rule, they are put into their positions because there are laws. And even though those who are lost cannot understand those laws entirely, those laws have been impressed upon the hearts of men. Even lost people know that they are doing wrong when they fight against the Lord God. And so these secular forces are to be utilized for your good. So he says, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, meaning the secular authority, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What's a sword mean? A sword means that in matters where criminal punishment must be dissed out, in the new covenant in which we are a part of, God will use secular authorities to often hold people accountable when they break criminal law. God can and does use these secular rulers and their administrations to keep peace and to exact some degree of justice. And so let's get some cultural context and see how that worked even in Jesus' day. At the time of the New Testament writing, the nation of Israel had a, de a degree of freedom to govern according to Old Testament law. Sometimes we call that law Torah. The Jews at the time of Jesus were not an independent nation. You realize that. They, call, they were called Israel still, and they, they had an identity of their own, but they were conquered and ruled by Rome. Nevertheless, Rome allowed them a degree of freedom to keep the laws of the Old Testament, the laws that Moses had given to the people, and to enforce them. Now, there were limits to those freedoms. They could not put a person to death. They could not exact that kind of strict punishment. We see that in the case of Christ. Remember, the high priests had to appeal to the Roman courts in order to get Jesus executed because they didn't have the authority to do it themselves. If you go back and read Acts 18, which is a chapter that deals with the inception of the Corinthian church, we recall an incident in which the secular council Gallio 
refused to try the Apostle Paul and made the Jews do it because their complaint was of a spiritual nature and not of a Roman legal nature. So it had nothing to do with Roman law. It was a matter of their own beliefs. And so he said, no, we're not going to try Paul. You guys take care of it yourself. And so God can use secular forces to judge matters that require the sword. But matters that don't require the sword should be mattered in-house in the church. What should be obvious here, what might not be obvious, is that the legal action forbidden in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8 has to do with taking another believer to court in order to gain something from them. And it's not about criminal matters strictly. That is different from testifying in a, in a criminal case. It's different from pressing criminal charges against someone. Is this instruction in chapter 6 pointing to civil or criminal matters? I'll let you decide. Look at the verses. Verse 3 talks about things that, uh, of this life, right? Things of this life. So just the trivial matters of living. Those are the reasons why the Corinthians are taking each other to court. Verse 1 and verse 5 both talk about disputes with one another. So these are arguments. This is not someone taking someone hostage with a knife. This is people disagreeing about things. This is civil matters. Verses 7 through 8 involved cheating and defrauding one another. In fact, if you look at chapters 5 and 6, there are three lists of sins. And each of those lists of sins include and condemn greed. And so there's a good chance that greed is really what's defining these brothers and sisters as they battle each other in secular courts. We're talking primarily of civil matters here. Keeping Romans 13 into consideration, God has ordained three basic social institutions, hasn't he? The family, the state, and the church. And each one of those institutions has responsibilities, has borders to what it can accomplish and what it cannot accomplish. The state wields the sword in legal matters. They are there for your defense. They are there for the punishment of, uh, of sins that require imprisonment or execution. That is not the job of the church or the family. I'm not saying that the family is, has got to be completely passive. Sometimes you have to defend your family, right? But that is not primarily your job to punish the wicked. When that order is skewed and the church tries to be the one that wields the sword, it causes massive problems. It causes vigilante justice. It causes a corrupted church and state where the church begins to flex its mighty power and threaten others to manipulate people. That's not what God wants for the church to do. You ever heard of a Christian prison? You're like, I feel like I'm sitting in one right now. Wrap it up. Uh, Christian prison. No, you've never heard of that, right? You've heard of Christian orphanages. You've heard of Christian hospitals. You've never heard of a Christian prison, and that's because the, the church does not wield the sword. In criminal matters, we've got to respect the secular courts and the sword which God has ordained that they wield. Why is this important? You have read of the Roman Catholic Church in the news and how the diocese of the Roman Catholic Church have covered up child sexual abuse scandals, haven't you? What kind of an effect has that had on a world that thinks of the church as the church and doesn't distinguish between Roman Catholic, Protestant, or any of those things. What does it make them think of Christians? It makes them think of them as a bunch of phony fakes. There was criminal action that should have been handled by those who wield the sword, and yet those bishops refused to do what was right. They refused to reveal the sins of these bishops and these priests to the authorities so they could go through the proper channels ordained by God for justice. And before we point the finger too abruptly at those Roman Catholics over there, Southern Baptist churches have recently confessed error in failing to properly report criminal activity themselves. 
thinking that they could subvert the state in matters particularly of sexual assault and spousal abuse. We've spoken many times about Resolution 9, this really terrible resolution that passed in 2019 about critical race theory, which is causing a lot of confusion among believers and making them dive into what is amounting to an exodus away from scriptural authority. But at that same 2019 uh, Southern Baptist Convention, to the convention's credit, they admonished the churches who had made the mistake of thinking that they could handle sexual sin and abuse in-house without going to the authorities. They told them that is wrong, because it is. The church has a degree, a domain of dominion. It's not that the church does not speak to criminal things. We are to teach against it in the pulpit. We are to admonish it when it happens, but we must also respect that God uses the state to enforce matters of the sword. There is a second point we would do well to consider. At the beginning of the sermon, we asked the question, is it ever okay for a Christian to enter into litigation in secular courts? And the answer is, it depends on which parties are involved, right? And then we talked about how Paul said, brothers and sisters in Christ have no business suing each other. But, a second point here, not every person who claims to be a saint is a saint. Not every person who claims to be a saint is a saint. It is not random that Paul uses the term saint to describe the people of Corinth here. Now, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, maybe you got saved and you're in a Protestant church now, you might have grown up with that idea that sainthood is only a title that you apply to somebody who is exceptionally spiritual and has performed a miracle of some kind or another, but the Bible never speaks of saints that way. The Bible uses the term saints pretty frequently, and what does it always point to? It points to those who are in Jesus Christ, who experienced the miracle of salvation and who are walking in his truth. So when Paul uses this term saints, he's doing it very intentionally. He's speaking about those who have had a radical change of heart based on the initiative of the Spirit as God's elect have been chosen out of sin and have been transformed, their minds changed, their understanding enlightened and awakened. These are the saints. But sadly, the state of the church in the world is in such a place that perhaps even a majority of the people who make up the Protestant church and the membership rosters of those churches and proclaim to be followers of Jesus in reality could not even describe the gospel to you. Don't even know what they say saves them. If you cannot describe the reality of the gospel, if it is not known to you, then are you truly a believer in Christ? God works all things for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his perfect purposes, right? I have very little doubt that this difficult season in America's history is going to, re- it's going to produce in the culture a painful but a necessary pruning of God's church. Where those who have up to this point been happy to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, And that means I'm going to heaven. But you look at their life, there's no love for the Lord there. There's no reverence for the word there. There's no commitment to the body of Christ there. They are flying solo and doing whatever they want to do and just plopping Christ and his name on their life and saying, that means I'm a Christian. And so sadly, some of those people need to understand where they really stand. 
But there is a bright side to that. If you say you are of Christ and you are not of Christ, there's a great danger in that. And Matthew 7, 7 reminds us that many will come into the kingdom of heaven or to its gates and say, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? Did we not do great miracles in your name and signs and wonders? And Jesus will look at them and say, Depart from me, evildoer, for I never knew you. He's not going to say, you started off really strong, and it was good when you were in the kingdom for a while, but now you don't qualify. We had to kick you out. Somebody says. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. So I do believe that as it becomes more difficult in this nation to bear the name of Christ, and it will, church, it's going to become a lot harder. Laws are being written right now which will make it more difficult for the truth to be espoused from this pulpit. It's going to be more difficult for you to share the gospel, not only with those outside, but with your own children in your own house. It's going to be more difficult to homeschool your kids because the state wants to direct their upbringing, wants to make Americans out of them, not Christians. So it's going to get harder and harder to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And those who do not have a true faith in him, you're going to see those branches fall away. I'm going to see a pruning. And the church is going to become smaller, but it's going to become truer as well. In the meantime, those who claim to be believers will in time, as you watch them, as you apply the word to their lives, they will show us evidence that the Lord is not really their Lord. And if that happens, there may be a time when a resolution has got to be sought by way of governmental institutions that wield the sword rather than trying to do that in-house if that person doesn't belong in-house. Approach an offender who you believe to be a Christian or hope to be a Christian with charity. Believe that they are a believer until they give you reason not to. Approach them humbly. You are not the one who decides whether they are a Christian or not. Christ is. But you do have discernment. You do have fruit that is described in the scripture that should give you a good indicator of whether this person is acting in good faith in Jesus Christ or not. If the evidence is there that the individual is not trusting the Lord, then the conflict should not be considered a family affair. To expect a non-believer to respect the judgment of the word of God is foolishness. In a situation like that, we have a choice. And this is not an easy choice sometimes, friends. We can either let ourselves be defrauded which I would argue is usually the best choice, though it is not the choice that you probably want to decide on. If you've been offended by one who claims to be a Christian is not a Christian, you can either take them to court or you can just decide, you know what, it's not worth it to me. You're not, in my opinion or what I can see, I don't see true faith in you, but the world might be deceived by that. I don't want them to think that we're beating each other up in court and make them think that that's what Christians do. So you might choose to just let yourself be defrauded or let the divine providence of God, second choice, working through his sovereign appointed governments, you can let them decide for you what's going on here. Judge those who are outside of the church, God, through, your, through the governments that you have given the sword which to wield, and we as the church will judge those who are inside because that's what you commanded us to do. There may need to be two trials. Sometimes you begin in good faith, hoping that someone is a believer. An attempt at resolution is sought within the confines of the church and under the ordinances of the scripture. And then as a person reveals that their faith is not really in Christ, you may need to move that trial to a secular place that is held in check by the state. Now to clarify, it is not as though the Lord does not have power to judge the guilty if they are a non-believer. He does, and he will, ultimately. 
Final judgment is on hold until the day of judgment, but it will not be forgotten. It will not be passed over. Every sin will be properly punished, either on he who committed it or on the Christ who died to redeem the person who committed it. But meanwhile, friends, life still needs to function here. So human courts will have to step in from time to time to render decisions in these matters where it is a conflict between a non-believer and a believer. Third, there are some very specific cases, and I don't pretend to know them all. Specific cases when a Christian is clearly not motivated to advance their own situation. Their goal is not to gain from a brother or sister. Their goal is not to advance their situation or to make somebody else look foolish or to get them back where it might be acceptable to take a professing Christian to court. And these would be extremely rare cases. And to be honest, they are situations where the civil overlaps the criminal, where there is a gray area. Just a couple that I could think of is the possibility that uh, true believers might get into a divorce. It's rare, but it can happen. And there might be custody battle between the children. Where do those kids go? Um, there might be a need to let the courts intervene and have a say in that because there are legal ramifications and rights that could be taken into account later which could cause great grief and hardship to those Christians if they do not follow the rules. Um, there might be situations that in order to protect the flock of God or somebody else's flock from fraudulent leaders that Christians may need to take professing leaders, Christian leaders, to court if somebody is embezzling money but yet still claims to follow Christ, sometimes Christians do terrible things. So there might be situations there in order to protect the well-being of the church or to keep another church from being led astray by a false prophet, a false leader, you might need to take a, somebody to court in that regard. But, and there might be other matters. But usually they, like I said, blur the line between criminal and civil. The vast majority of the time that we're looking at, there's no reason why two Christians cannot handle their grievance within the guidance of God's church. A person who is playing church, who's acting like a Christian but doesn't have true faith, will be very tempted to ignore the mandate to keep the judgment in-house. It's not going to work to their ends. It's not pragmatic for them. Because it can only be followed if we trust the sovereignty of God and the service of those whom he has appointed as elders over his church. And somebody who's just playing Christian is not interested in that. One of the important fruit that hangs from the vine of a true believer is this. A willingness to prioritize the name of God above our own material advantages and above our own hurt egos. So verse 7 says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. What a shame that there is even a need for these disputes, friends. If the Christians or if the Corinthians, rather, were more committed to one another commands that we see throughout Scripture, there would be little reason for these kinds of arbitration. But unfortunately, the Corinthians are more concerned about their personal situations than they are about the health of the bride of Christ. Friends, it is better not to subject one's self to the futility in judgment rather than to take each other to court and send the message that God's wisdom, of which his people are stewards, is insufficient to bring about Justice. What, what a shame that would be if that's the message we're sending to the world. Personal gain counts for nothing if the name of Jesus suffers as a result of that personal gain. 
Here's an illustration. This didn't really happen, but it's just a scenario. Let's say that I pay a Christian brother to do a service for me. He does the service, but he does not do a good job. In fact, the questionable work that he renders ends up, ends up costing me thousands of dollars in corrective damages to the house that he was working on. He feels he's done his best, and he's lived up to what he said that he would do. He gave me a great deal, and so he feels like I should expect good work. I'm financially vulnerable in part because of his lack of skill and my lack of judgment in hiring him. So what do we do? If I am serious about this matter and if I truly believe that the man is a Christian, despite disagreeing with his valuations of the work that he did on the house, then I should prioritize the good name of Jesus above the financial advantage of a victory in court. I should rather be defrauded than have to present a scenario to secular observers that makes the church of God look like an institution that lacks love and integrity. And this is where the rubber meets the road, friends. It's one thing to talk about principles. It's another thing to let those principles guide our very lives. Are you willing to recognize that all that you own isn't yours anyway? That it belongs to Christ? And that it's better to take that hit financially to preserve the good name of Christ among those who are confused about the truth than it would be to go and fight and claw and to get every penny back that is owed to you. We sometimes get confused and think that our constitutional rights somehow trump the rights that God has given to us as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Your right as a Christian is to bear the name of Christ and that is more important than the pursuit of happiness or property or vindication. The need for litigation or conflict or any kind can be greatly diminished, friends, if we'll simply walk in wisdom and guard our hearts. Walk in wisdom. Live your life according to the Word of God and the wisdom that it provides, the good cautions that it presents to you about how you conduct yourself and how you look at the wicked world around you. And then guard your heart from the offenses that might land someone in court someday. The more you conduct yourself in accordance with the good instruction of God, the less people will have to bring against you. We can look at Daniel. Daniel, who the other Chaldeans, the other administers of wisdom in the nation of the Medes and the, Perg, uh, the Persians wanted to bring him down. They wanted to accuse him of something and they looked at his life and he was guarding his heart. He was walking in wisdom. There was nothing they could find against him. They had to convince the king to make up a new law that would violate God's law in order to put him at odds with the Medes and Persian Empire. Look at Joseph who walked in the truth and did what was right. You know what? He still got thrown in jail, didn't he? That's all right. God used that situation for the good, not only for the kingdom of Egypt, but also for Joseph's own family and brought reconciliation to he and his brothers and his father through that. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, go and study that this week if you've got some time. Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor and he says, you know what, just live your lives in such a way according to the word that when the people of this world want to point at you and call you an evildoer, that they won't have any ammunition. Don't give them anything to, to point at you. Don't give them any reason to hate you and to scoff at you and think of you as a hypocrite. And then on the day of visitation, on the day of the Lord, guess what they're going to do? They're going to have nothing to say about you except for glory to God for what he did in the life of that believer. I hated them in that life. I was against them, but now I see they were doing what was right. They would rather be defrauded than let the name of their glorious God be drugged through the mud. Having a biblical understanding of the nature of man will help us to be realistic and when necessary, cautious 
in the way that we extend ourselves for others. The nature of man is sinful, and that tendency doesn't leave us entirely when we trust Christ, does it? Sinless perfection on this earth is a myth. doesn't happen. So budget for the need for repentance among your brothers and sisters in Christ. Know that as you join yourself to a church, that your willingness to love them is risky, but it is commanded of you of God. When you get near to other people and you dwell with them and you live close to them, they will break your heart at times. They will let you down at times because they're just people. But you're not here just for them. You're here for Christ. They're icing on the cake. You're here for Christ. So budget in your heart that when you get involved with the church that there will be times when they will be less for you than what you want them to be. But also realize that they are not what you need. Christ is what you need. And so long as Christ is bringing what you need through his church, they are a blessing to you. But know that you will have to forgive and know that others will have to forgive you as well. That you will let down your brother and sister too. And if this is a community of grace, you don't have to be too afraid. Because if this is a community of grace under the direction of Christ, you'll be forgiven by your brother and sister as well. I pray that this passage leads to a reevaluation of our mindset on insult and injury. Personal rights are not as important as the right and the responsibility that Christians have to glorify God. And we should be willing to surrender our personal rights and freedoms for the sake of his perfect honor. And this seems radical, yet it is the normal Christian life, friends. And we should not shy away from it. Suffering wrong at the hands of the lost is not the worst thing we can experience. Our prime goal is not to make sure that the locust doesn't get a nibble of our crops. It is not to protect the superficial assets that we too often idolize and covet. Those things don't really matter in the end. We serve a sovereign king. And that sovereign God has greater plans and intentions for our lives than simply making sure we never suffer. He's got greater plans in just making sure that he fills our lives with temporary blessings and stuff. After all, friends, we deserve to suffer, don't we? Aren't we sinners too? Don't we deserve to be defrauded? We deserve to have all that is in our bank accounts confiscated and given to someone who deserves it more than us. But God is gracious, isn't he? His mercy teaches us in a very stunning way that stuff matters very little. The glory of God expressed by the heart is what matters. And if your heart is glorifying God, first and foremost, what do you have to lose? What do you have to fear? Bow with me as we close in a word of prayer, please. Jesus, I've preached long, and I thank you for the patience of our congregation here today. I pray that it was not a dull sermon. I pray that the things that we learned about piqued our interest and reminded us of the beauty of our Savior. I pray, God, that there might be even some business that needs to be dealt with after this sermon where we go to a brother and sister in Christ that we have a grudge against and we just simply forgive them for it, Lord God, because you have forgiven us. Let that radical expression of love and willingness to put all justice into your hands instead of keeping it in our own. Let that be a mark, a characteristic of our congregation, Lord God, and of your church in the world. Please forgive us, Lord, when we feel entitled and think we deserve something that we haven't gotten, Lord God. The only thing that we haven't gotten that we deserved is punishment in hell. And we're so very grateful, Lord, that you endured 
the hurt of the cross so that we could avoid that forever. Keep loving us, Lord God. Keep guiding us and directing us. May we, in all things, submit ourselves to your good teaching. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.